5: Hello everyone and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And today we're going to be talking about a band that is probably more famous for the groups that started after this band broke up. Like, Jordan, have you heard of Sunbolt?
3: Ah, uh, yes I have. Now, Steve, let me ask you are, you, are you familiar with Wilco?
5: Yes, I believe I've heard of the band Wilco. As a <laughs> matter of fact, I believe that they are one of the great American bands of all time. But we'll get into that as uh, we get into this episode. But before Sunvolt and Wilco, there was a band called Uncle Tupelo. And Uncle Tupelo was a pioneering band of a genre called alt country. And I just want to say, Jordan, that as a resident and uh, native of the Midwest, that old country means a lot to me. You know, this is music about real Americans drinking in saloons and losing their jobs and living in
3: dead-end small towns. It's, it's very uplifting music, Jordan. Well, I'm from Boston, so nurses welcome newborns by playing Dropkick Murphys in the hospital. So uh, <laughs> so that's where I'm coming from. They, they pour a pint of Sam Adams into a baby bottle. So that's, that's when we get to... Uh, dropkick murphy's episode that's when i'll really shine but, uh, oh, i can't wait But for now uncle tupelo yeah well <laughs> what would
5: dropkick murphy's uh rival be like sobriety is that their rivalry <laughs> i i don't I, I, or is yeah. there like another irish <laughs> like, rock band that is you know gonna intrude on their turf
3: i do mean the, the pogues i don't even know yeah yeah well, well i was gonna say it's sam adams versus uh Michelob ultra or something well we digress
5: we're not going to be talking about Dropkick Murphys and, and Sobriety or Irish rock bands today. We're going to be talking about Uncle Tupelo and we're going to be talking about the rivalry between Jeff Tweedy and Jay Farrar, which in a way has been put to bed. But I feel like if you walk up to any like, middle-aged Midwestern man at a party and you ask them about this, they will be able to talk for two hours about it. I feel like this there's something about these two guys and, and what they went through almost 30 years ago that is still very intriguing to some of us.
3: I love how personal this feels for you. This is really going to be fun. I'm excited to talk to you about it. It is.
5: We're going to get deep. I think uh, this is going to feel like psychoanalysis for me.
3: (laughs) Well, all right. uh, Let's dive into this mess. All right. So Jeff and Jay, they go way back. They are born and raised in the small town of Belleville, Illinois. Kind of a dead on the vine farm town if you will the industry's dried up it's it's not a happy place to be is that is that a fair thing to say yeah
5: i mean this is really like the middle of nowhere and i think especially at this moment in time i mean we're decades away from the internet becoming a thing and you know there's not a lot of culture and it's interesting like how these two guys ended up being drawn to each other because they were really the only two people in their town that were into punk rock I i think jeff was into the ramones and and Jay was into, in, in, into the Sex Pistols.
3: Right. They meet in their high school English class. It was like an icebreaker game at the beginning. And they, it comes out that they both are into punk. And as anyone who grew up in a small town like I did, and, and it sounds like you did too, can tell you, when you find someone, especially at that age, who's into the same kind of niche music as you are, you you cling to those people. I mean, it's really hard to overstate how much that person me- means to you. So I think that that really forms the foundation of their relationship is this this? this kinship of punk rock.
5: Yeah, and and it's interesting like if you look at the totality of the relationship because you feel like in a way there wasn't a whole lot else maybe that would ultimately bonded them, you know, cuz they they seem like opposites in a lot of ways, but like you said, I think especially at that moment in time um where you couldn't just go on Facebook or Twitter and connect with people anywhere in the world over shared interests. You know, if you found someone in your town that was into this very specific sort of music, it was like finding, like, a long-lost cousin. And it seems like these two guys gravitated to each other for that reason.
3: And it was kind of an unequal partnership or unequal friendship because... Jeff absolutely idolized Jay and looked up to him like an older brother, even though he's only, I think, eight months older. And he would later say he was in awe of him. Jay was playing in bands with uh, with his older brothers. He came from a very musical family. And Jeff would later talk about going to see them perform and just have his teenage mind totally blown by watching Jay sing Gang of Four songs they were playing. And he'd never seen a garage band perform before. So this was huge for him.
5: Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people, you know, have friends like this at certain times in their lives where... It's like you have one friend who's clearly in the power position and the other friend who's constantly trying to impress that friend, you know, because they almost feel like they don't deserve to be friends with this person. And, you know, Jeff Tweedy, when he wrote his book, uh, which is called, of course, Let's Go So We Can Get Back. Have you read that book, by the way?
3: Yeah, I read it when it came out. It's uh, I mean, it's like his songs. It's very warm, very intimate. But yeah, he talks a lot about their early years.
5: Yeah, it's like one of the great memoirs that's come out in recent years and and he does talk about how in the beginning he felt like he had to hide his enthusiasm around Jay Farrar because, you know, Jeff, I think was a more naturally effusive person, someone who's going to wear his heart on his sleeve. Whereas Jay, even at that time was very taciturn and uh, wouldn't show his emotions and and almost would look down on people that were like too happy or, or expressing themselves too much. And, as you go along in Uncle Tupelo, it seems like that dynamic never really changed, and eventually it became a problem.
3: Right. I mean, I always got the idea that Jeff was kind of almost this puppy figure. He craved the tension and affection and love and interaction. And Jay, I just kind of got off, was in his room with a bottle of bourbon, like, you know, listening to Woody <laughs> Guthrie and a 12-string acoustic or something, or an old national guitar or something. I don't know. They're very, very different people. And as you said earlier, music really seems to be the only thing that's bonding them together at this, this point. So... They start playing in a band together. First it was called the Plebs, I believe. Plebs, plebs. I think it might be plebs. Plebs, plebs. And um and then they kind of morph into a rockabilly band called the Primitives, which Rockabilly is not the first thing that comes to mind when I when I think of forming sort of the great American band. <laughs> right.
5: Yeah. And I th- I feel like that came more from Jay. I think Jeff was ultimately the one that was, like, encouraging. Just happy to be there. Yeah. I, I think Jeff was, like, saying, okay, we need to somehow combine this Roots music that we're playing in the primitives with something more contemporary, like the, the the punk rock that's happening right now. And you mentioned, you know, Gang of Four, but, you know, obviously the Minutemen were big with these guys, as were the replacements in Husker do. And, when Uncle Tupelo starts to take shape in the late 80s, you can hear those influences starting to come together. You know, the punk rock and the more sort of country roots music.
3: Yeah, and a lot of the early lyrics, it's funny, their styles develop early on, and there's really sort of two key songs to point to. First for Jay, and Jay really emerges in Uncle Tupelo early on as the most fully formed artist of the two. He's really out of the gate, incredibly strong, and he writes a song, one of his first songs called I Got Drunk. And he (laughs) he sounds like the world's youngest old man, He's world weary at 20 years old. He's singing in this cracked, ravaged voice at 20. Uh, I grabbed me a fifth, poured me a shot. I thought about all the things that I haven't got, (laughs) which is incredible from, from a 20 year old. I mean, he's clearly an old soul and there's his songs. Definitely have weight, and depending on your point of view, it either comes across as gravitas, or it just comes across as, like, heavy and, and maudlin. I mean, and I, I'm sort of in the middle. It depends on the song, but I'm I incredibly gifted lyricist. I mean, I think the fact that
5: it doesn't automatically sound contrived says a lot about how strong of a personality Jay Farrar was at this time. Because as you said, he was just like this 20-year-old kid, and he's singing songs about, you know, being like a lifelong alcoholic who's like <laughs> working in factories for 20 years. And, you know, you look and I I always think of like the tracklist thing on the first Uncle, Uncle Tupelo record from 1990 called No Depression. And there's like songs called Graveyard Shift and Factory Belt and Whiskey Bottle. And there's even a song called Flatness, you know, which <laughs> uh, you know, I think just kind of speaks to the desolation that was existing, especially in Jay Farrar's songs. But... What really put those songs across, I think, at that time was his voice. Oh yeah, he he had, I think, the greatest voice in the history of alt country. Uh, and, And defining alt country pretty narrowly as the music from like the late '80s to the early 2000s. Like, I'm not getting like Grand Parsons and all the precursors. To me, that's something different. But like what alt country was in that sort of decade or so span, Farrar to me like just the sound of his voice singing a song like Moonshiner. Which ended up on the third Uncle Tupelo record, the the March sixteenth, the twentieth, nineteen ninety two record, um, and Moonshiner, of course, is this old folk song that's been performed by Bob Dylan and the Clancy Brothers, Dave Von Ronk, all of these legends, and yet to me, the way Farrar sings it, he has the definitive version of that song, and he it's like this sort of baritone, very rich. I remember Jeff Tweedy describing it as like an Old Testament sounding voice. (laughs) Uh, And it's a voice that I think a lot of other singers tried to affect and they couldn't pull it off. It just sounded corny. It sounded like someone trying to sound like they were from the South or trying to sound like they had this tremendous wisdom or gravitas. And and Farrar had that naturally uh, at that age. And it really defined... Uncle Tupelo in a lot of ways. Like I always think of Uncle Tupelo as being like a grittier version of the Replacements. Like the Replacements being this band that was I think a party band that had darkness on the edges. You know, they'd have a song like Here Comes a Regular, which was about, you know, drinking yourself to death in a small town bar. And that's pretty much all of Uncle Tupelo's first album. Exactly. It's like we're going to do Here Comes a Regular all the time. And that comes mainly from Farrar uh, because Jeff Tweedy's songwriting style is much different.
3: Right, Jeff said well, think about Jay, and, and as you said, his his voice is his greatest strength, and the fact that he's able to sing these kind of songs at age 20 and have them not sound contrived is just a testament to how great a singer he is. There is something to me that always felt that it, it did seem a little, almost like a facade. I mean, I know he, he grew up in this environment that was, you know, economically depressed and not a lot going on, but I don't know. It, it, I know he worked at his mother's bookshop and I always kind of got the impression that he he was reading like a ton of Steinbeck novels and stuff like that. And it, it felt more like literature as opposed to something that was more intimate and from his soul, which is where Jeff Tweedy comes from. He, and I always thought that his lyrics, he's not afraid to wear his heart on his sleeve in his songs. And one of Jeff Tweedy's crucial early songs, a song called Screen Door, which is this optimistic little folk song that he sings in this. His voice at that time is probably the polar opposite of Jay's, right? It's this really sort of thin, reedy, poppy. It's got a decent pop quality to it, I think, wouldn't you say? But very different. Yeah, there's a line in Screen Door
5: where Jeff Tweedy says, down here where we're at, everyone is equally poor. And there's something about the way he sings that. It sounds a little awkward in the song. I always kind of laugh at it (laughs) when I hear it, just because like, if you were actually in a, you know, lower middle class situation, you probably wouldn't describe everyone as being equally poor. You know, I, I feel like you would say, you know, we're all like, I feel like when you're actually poor and you're surrounded by other poor people, you don't necessarily notice how poor you are. You know, there's no context for it. There's no way to compare it. You know, so to write it that way, it always seemed kind of weird. But, you know, you're talking about you feel like Jay Ferraro was maybe a little contrived. I feel like for this kind of music, he was perfectly suited for what this genre demanded. And it demanded a voice like that, and it demanded that sort of songwriting perspective. Whereas I think when Jeff Tweedy was writing in this style, he wasn't an, a strict alt-country artist. You know? And I think for him, it was maybe more of a contrivance than it was for Farrar. And ultimately, when you look at the totality of his career, the limitations that you hear in a song like Screen Door ultimately end up being strengths because I think as he moves into Wilco, Tweedy proves to be a much more malleable artist, someone who can evolve much easier because he's not as fixed into, into certain thematic qualities or sonic qualities the way that Farrar is. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves with that. That's some foreshadowing for later in the episode. It's just fascinating to me that you can hear both of these guys, who they are and where they're going to be going, this early in their career.
3: Yeah, and what they write about to I me, mean, Jay, much like how he is in person in his lyrics, is not very open with this feeling. So he speaks through these characters and these archetypes that represent Middle America. It's sort of like continuation of Nixon's silent majority, and it sort of foreshadows Trump's America in a lot of ways, whatever you want to call it. These people that are struggling, these factory workers, unemployed, desperate people, propping up the bar because it's the only place they can go to for relief. Um, and whereas Jeff kind of come he writes about what he knows which is himself he doesn't really tackle a lot of like social issues or populist issues in his songs
5: right and i i think too there's a dynamic here that reminds me a little bit of like what existed in who's could do where you could say that like jay farrar was like the bob mold type figure who you know bob mold was much more intense and you know he was the guy that was screaming especially on the early records and very cathartic type music. Whereas Grant Hart was the guy who would write these beautiful pop songs and set them to buzzsaw guitars. But he was like the sweet to the, the, the spice or the vinegar that, that mold would bring. And as Uncle Tupelo evolved and there was more songwriting parody in the band, it seemed like they might have started to achieve that sort of balance. Um, but of course, the band ended up falling apart before that. It's also worth noting that Bob Mold and Grant Hart also ended up hating each other by, by the end so. of their band. And we'll probably end up talking about that at some point, oh, uh, yeah. I'd imagine, in this show.
3: Yeah. yeah, two for two
5: for the Midwest sweet and sour songwriting duos. Yeah. Well, that's the way we are in the Midwest. We We hold our feelings in for like, you know six seven eight years and then we end up screaming at each other and ruining our friend our relationships forever you know you could see it in uncle tupelo you could see it in husker do and yeah when we do the husker do episode it'll be fun to explore that again oh yeah we're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more rivals
0: welcome to 500 greatest songs
1: or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
0: Jean, Eugene, Fodor. Jean, was we'll born.
2: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jean, and the business. I understand now. it's a wise man. Marie a wiser woman.
4: Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there.
3: Well, let's go through the problems that are kind of emerging in Uncle Tupelo as they, they they released their first album, No Depression, which really, kind of a misnomer title, should be, yes, probably some depression there. Bummer album. Excessive depression. Right. Yeah. So they're moving on. Really... The primary problem as the group progresses is Jeff coming into his own creatively. You have the second album, Still Feel Gone, where that's really where the competition truly begins, I think. You have Jeff's songs like Black Eye, Nothing, d Boon, which, which are a huge leap forward. But I think Gun is really the moment when he comes out as a songwriter. That That's the first time he wrote something that I think was equal to Farrar, wouldn't you say?
5: Yeah, definitely. And, and it's interesting that... I- that's one of the only Uncle Tupelo songs that Tweedy will still play with Wilco. Uh, he doesn't play Gun very often, but you know he's not playing anything really off of No Depression, and that seems to be an acknowledgement that Gun was the beginning of him starting to discover his own style. And to reiterate what we were saying before, you know, Gun—it's not a song about gun control. It's not a song about getting drunk and shooting your your foreman at the factory, you know, like <laughs> as you would expect from like a Jay Farrar song, like Right, it was called Gun. You know, Gun is a song about falling in love and and, and feeling like you're about to explode, you know, like, like a gun, you know, that it, it's a romantic song and it's an expression of romantic intensity. And that is the zone where Jeff Tweedy lives. And in a way, it's not typical of, the types of things that Uncle Tupelo were doing at that time. It's much more personal, much more expressive. Much more poppy. Much more poppy. It's a catchy song. And it's just not the kind of song that you would expect someone like Jay Farrar, who's very self-contained, would write.
3: Which is why it probably really pissed Jay off when not only was it the lead track on the album, but it was the lead single for the album, too. And it must have been like when the Beatles chose something as a, a side i mean it, it must have been a, a total shock for him to think oh my god like this is this guy who was such a junior partner for me for so long now has the lead single and the lead track on the album
5: yeah and, and it's going to be the beginning of things like that happening in uncle tupelo it will not be the last time that a jeff tweedy song is pushed to the forefront at the expense of jay farrar
3: and the thing and comes up again and again they really they aren't communicating they aren't expressing their feelings there's a great story where so Jeff and Jay and the drummer Mike Heidorn, are all living sort of monkeys style in this apartment uninsulated apartment in Belleville and I think it was Mike said later on that if if Jay wanted to tell the band to learn a song to cover for their set he wouldn't actually tell them he would just play a song on their on their stereo <laughs> system over and over and over again and just point the speakers like towards their bedroom and kind of like hope they got the hint. Which totally
5: normal, right. totally normal way to communicate, yeah. by the way, which, again, also a very Midwestern <laughs> trick to do, by the way, sort of like a, you know, passive aggressive, like you should know what I want type <laughs> move um, and very common. I, I, I feel like I have parents in my life that have done this sort of thing. And like I said, this this might be psychotherapy for me, so I don't want to delve too deep into that, but I feel like uh, it's a very common Uh, attribute of many midwesterners Um, but along with the non-communication you also have drinking problems especially for for jeff tweedy which i feel like was in a way a manifestation of the communication or non-communication that was happening in the band because tweedy essentially felt the burden of being the spokesman of the band because they would be in interview situations and Jay Farrar wouldn't communicate so jeff tweedy would often Barge in, answer all the questions. And then when they would be at shows, he would be the social one talking to fans after the gigs. And often that meant drinking with fans and drinking too much. And uh, at some point, Tweedy realizes that this is something that's going to be destructive for him because he has a history of alcoholism in his family. There's a strong history of alcoholism throughout the midwest <laughs> again this is a, a very strong regional uh, uh you know problem um so he's feeling like this is something he needs to stop although of course jeff will later on have other addiction issues that that crop up once he gets into wilco but yeah it's fascinating how you know all these things start to come together and how farrar is reacting to it because Ferrar is basically looking at tweety like you're a raging egomaniac you know, like you're barge, you know, he's probably looking at Tweety during these interview situations, always speaking up. And then at shows, you know, always sort of taking the lead and engaging with fans. And Tweety in his mind is probably thinking like, I need to do this because Jay won't do it. But in Jay's mind, I mean, he's looking at Jeff like, who does this guy think he is? Like <laughs> he thinks he's like Steven Tyler or something. <laughs> I mean, right. I mean, that seems to be like like a serious crack that's starting to form. Like over that sort of thing.
3: Yeah. I mean, they both feel that they're in the right and doing what they have to do. And for and for Jeff, I think it's worth noting that it's probably not easy for him. He, as a kid, it, when it, when Jay first met him, he was incredibly shy and kind of one of those only speaks when spoken to types. So it's probably a lot of things that fed it, uh, that a uh, big reason that fed into his drinking, too, is that he probably needed the courage to put himself out there because, he, as you said, he felt like Jay wasn't going to.
5: You know, I was just thinking, there's a story from Greg Cott's book. Greg Cott, by the way, wrote a great book about Wilco called Learning How to Die. Great, great book. Which is also a great history of Uncle Tupelo. There's a bunch of Uncle Tupelo stuff in there. And th- there's a story in there that Jeff Tweedy tells about how, like, around this time they'd be performing and, you know, Jay wouldn't say anything in the microphone. So Jeff would engage with the audience. And to this day, Jeff Tweedy is one of the great banter people at shows like he has great banter games oh he's like a, he's like a stand-up
3: song. he's incredible he's so he's good. a stand-up
5: comedian he's he's hilarious but he would talk between songs and like Jay Farrar would pull him aside on stage and say you know don't you ever fucking talk into that microphone ever again you know? <laughs> and getting really pissed Jesus, off about yeah. him basically being a front man instead of saying you know I don't want to talk to the audience someone should talk to the audience I'm glad that Jeff is doing it instead of saying that, he felt threatened essentially by Jeff doing this, and and frankly annoyed. You know, and it seems like Jay felt that no one should be talking to the audience. <laughs> Everyone should be as, you know, uncommunicated as, yeah. as, as he was. <laughs> and so that basically leads up to the fourth and final Uncle Tupelo record, which is Anodyne, that comes in, out in 1993. And, and really, this record's like a mess. I, I mean, the record itself is great, but Everything behind, like the story behind the album, and like what happened afterward, it just sounds like it was a miserable time to be an Uncle Tupelo.
3: I always felt like this was their rumors, their Fleetwood Mac rumors. Like they can't actually talk to each (laughs) other, like in person, so they just like take it out on each other in their songs, and they like that's the way they get points across. I mean, if you just totally so many of the different tracks. I mean, Ferrara's slate addresses all his because. Anodyne's their first major label release on Sire, and he's not really comfortable with, with going on a major. And he talks about, he sings about um, working in the halls of shame, which is what I always thought that was about. And, which is, <laughs> right. and then, um, I can never say this, Chickamauga. the track Chickamauga, with yeah. one of the worst, bloodiest battles of the Civil War. It sounds to me like he's addressing Tweety, saying the time is right for getting out while we still can. Solitude. Is where I'm bound, and I
5: have to say, like I interviewed Jay Farrar uh, in in 2017, and I asked him about that song specifically, and I and I said, you know, it's been speculated among fans that you were writing about the impending breakup of Uncle Tupelo in this song, and I have to say that Farrar was much more, you know, outgoing in this interview than I expected. Like it was a really good interview, and I really enjoyed his insight because you know we were I was asking him about songs from throughout his career. He went mum on Chickamauga. He would not <laughs> engage You hit all. a nerve. I hit a nerve. So I ended up not even putting it in my story because he gave like a pretty non-response response to oh, what I man. said. So, which to me confirms that it is about that. Yeah. I mean, come on. It is about that because uh, it seems pretty clear when you listen to the song. But then
3: like Tweety has his own songs where he seems to be talking about Ferrar, right, on that record? Right. I was the long cut was kind of, you know, we, we've been in a deep rut and it's been killing me, but we'll get there eventually. Always thought was something he was directing at Jay and no sense in Loving. you might think that I don't care, but I do, which is pretty tender. <laughs> exactly.
5: It's just him. that's like they're back in high school again, trying to talk about punk bands. Yeah. It's like, I just want to tell you that I love you, Jay, and you won't let me, you know? This is my fan fiction for Jeff Tweedy <laughs> and Jay Farrar. I've, I've gone over this. I've gone over many scenarios of, over this in my mind. But, yeah, I feel like, you know, from Jay, it seems like you have these almost defiant expressions of disgust over where Uncle Tupelo is at this moment and his in expressing his desire to to exit the situation. And and with Tweedy, it's almost expressions of, of, of more hurt or confusion. It's like a white flag, uh, yeah. Which, or, or an olive branch. Which I, I – which, again, seems to be how it actually played out with these guys behind the scenes.
3: Right. I mean, this is the album where I think it's almost, I think it's about 50-50 in terms of who wrote each song. I think this is also the first album where they take individual song credits because before that, right, weren't they credited just Uncle Tupelo? And this was uh, the first time when they actually split it up.
5: Yeah. Although I wonder, I think maybe in retrospect, those albums are now, I think they're credited to like the specific writers. Oh, like I was okay. looking at the liner notes online and stuff. But yeah, I think there was an idea that they were more partners before Anodyne and then Anodyne made it pretty clear that, you know, that there were Jay songs and there were Jeff songs. And, you know, circling back to what we were saying before, you know, Gun ends up being a single off of Feel Gone. And then uh, in the uh, early part of 1984, Uncle Tupelo makes their first appearance on national television, which, by the way, I think this should illustrate that. As legendary as Uncle Tupelo is now, they were not a popular band in their in their day. I mean, this is like their fourth album, and they're finally getting on a major network show. You know, like, it, it took them a long time. And it's Conan. It's Conan O'Brien. Yeah, it's not The Tonight Show. It's not Letterman. You know, it's on, it, it's on Conan. Um, but the song they end up playing is the long cut, the Jeff Tweedy song. Really great, poppy, you know, fun rock song. And when you watch the show, and you can watch it on YouTube... You know, Jay Farrar just staring at his feet. <laughs> I've
3: never seen someone more miserable on national television. Which, you know, it's it's hard to say like, okay, it's like Jay Farrar,
5: he's not the most joyous stage presence even like in the best of times. So, you know, you almost don't want to read too much into it. But at the same time, he seems extra sullen in this clip. <laughs> and I'm sure that he was not happy. And of course, we're going to talk about this. Like, I mean, he was already out of the band essentially at that point
3: I mean, because he had quit in early 94 right he quit over christmas which i'm sure made him real popular in the uh, uncle <laughs> band. i just picture like so great timing right so so jay calls he doesn't even call jeff he calls the band's manager tony margarita right before christmas and tony relays the message to jeff who is hurt and furious that jay didn't talk to him first i mean which is just like you know he's known this guy since high school and he doesn't even give him the courtesy of quitting and telling him first so that leads to a showdown yeah Um, in
5: this scene it's like uncle tupelo they're not famous enough to get their own biopic but like i almost (laughs) feel like this scene justifies them getting their own biopic it's like one Should of the we act great, this out? Oh my god. I don't I can't even act it out. I think I'll burst into tears. I think you should just <laughs> recount it dispassionately. But uh it's it, it's intense. This is like marriage story. You know, this should be like Scarjo and Adam Driver <laughs> acting out this scene. You know, like like the like the like the the two dude heterosexual version of that. Like, you know, just screaming at each other in an apartment. Like yeah, you need to say this. I I can't even recount this 'Cause my, my chin will start quivering, I think.
3: <laughs> so so they're in the apartment that they've shared for years. This is this little tiny apartment. Uh Tweety goes up to Jay and says, Tell me to my face, why do you hate me? And Jay, I just imagine he takes a deep maybe takes a drag off a cigarette, looks off to the side, looks back at him and says, you don't know what it's like to stand on stage with somebody every night who loves themselves as much as you do. <sighs> and Tweety, you know, there's nothing to say to this. He just says, "You know, you're right. I don't have any idea." Just brutal, man. It's and chilly, what, chilly. what
5: kills me about this story is that I feel like Jeff Tweedy, you know, admired Jay Farrar, you know, as we've said, I think he looked up to him for a long time, and they did have that dynamic in their relationship where you know Tweedy was the one in the position of having to please Ferrar. You know Ferrar is like the cold father. You know the the, the father who <laughs> does never ever gives any affection, and like Tweedy yeah. is trying to get affection, and to have that person in your life say basically that you know I hate you, right? You know, and I don't want anything to do with you. Uh, just must have been uh, devastating. There's another aspect of the story too, where in, in Greg Kot's book he says that. Ferrar called Tweety a mama's boy.
3: <laughs> to have your hero call you a mama's boy is just that bad. That's like salt in the wounds. Pretty emasculating. Yeah. And
5: Wilco fans, of course, will recognize that in the song Misunderstood from Being There. There's a line in there where Tweety refers to himself as a mama's boy. And he said that that was a reference to what Jay Farrar said during this argument. Um, I think it's interesting that in Tweedy's book, his own book, he doesn't make reference to the mama's boy comment. He talks about this confrontation and, you know, recounts everything else almost word for word from the Greg Cott book. But he doesn't say the mama's boy thing. And I wonder, and this is me totally so, you know, psychoanalyzing, but like I've interviewed Jeff Tweedy and I interviewed him, um, you know, around the time that his, that his mom died. And he talked about how close he was to his mother. And I just wonder like wow. if that dig just went over the line. Like yeah. it's one thing to say like you're a prima donna on stage, but to go there, that is like that that's a real sign of malice at yeah. that point. And it, it it's probably something that I would imagine it's a cheap still shot. cuts deep. Yeah. Yeah, it's a cheap shot that like you don't really get over. Right. Uh, so so even if he wanted to keep the band going. If you hear your partner say stuff like that, you're probably like, okay, we're done. You know, I, I think it's time to move on.
3: Yeah. And so this is sort of the state of mind. This, ha- this happens in uh, early 94. And they they agree to do one more tour, mostly out of loyalty to their manager who sunk in all of his all of his money into the band. And they, they feel like they owe him this. And so the tour goes on in, in spring of 94. And it takes two weeks for the wheels to totally come off. They... they Jeff and Jay brawl in a uh, parking lot of a North Carolina club after Jay refused to sing harmonies on Jeff's songs. <laughs> Just um, petty. Probably wasn't much of a brawl, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, it probably was spit and, you know, maybe some slaps. I don't know. But it probably wasn't like Roadhouse or anything like that. But <laughs> but they had to be pulled apart by their tour manager, and they had a big band meeting the next day. And the tour manager basically asked Farrar, you know, what's dude, what's your problem? Farrar said... I don't have a problem with anyone here, but with you. And he points at Tweety. And at that right. moment, and this sounds like a Neil Simon play or something, that moment, their sound man couldn't handle the tension. He passes out and hits his head on the coffee table.
5: Uh, which I, I'm i with the sound man. Right. I'm about to pass out. <laughs> just hearing about this 30 years later. I mean, what blows my mind about these stories is that like the hatred seems to be one-sided. Um, that you don't really hear Tweedy talking about having these reciprocated feelings of hostility towards ferrar if anything he's feeling sort of bemused by how far is it re- uh, acting at this at this time and although you know as we talk about this stuff now i mean Tweedy's talked a lot more about this time than ferrar has i mean we're getting more of his perspective than we are from Ferrar, so maybe it's the the in fairness to Jay, maybe there's some sort of a skewed perspective on this.
3: Right. I mean, Jeff's version has kind of been accepted as fact from being a Greg Cott's book, and as you said, that the many, 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 many more interviews that he's done than Jay. But in 2005, Jay does give an interview to Anthony DeCurtis in uh, in Relics, and he said that it was more than just musical differences. He claims that a few years before their breakup, Jeff was drunk in the backseat of the Uncle Tupelo van. And he started coming on to Jay's girlfriend, stroking her hair, and basically confess, drunkenly confessing to to feelings of of love for her. And uh, to him, this was the ultimate betrayal. And according to the interview, he quit the band for a couple weeks before ultimately coming back. I, for one, believe that that could be something that. That, you know, you don't want to completely blow up this band that you put so much into that actually seems to be going somewhere. I think this might have been right around when they got Peter Buck to produce their third album. Probably wanted to do his best to kind of stifle any kind of interpersonal drama. But I don't think you come back from that. I think that that could have really been the start of the the schism, even with all the songwriting disparity and, and ego that went on there. I wouldn't blame him, at least. Yeah, I mean, my, my feelings about this story, because I've heard this
5: story, and there's also a part of the story where Jay says that Jeff called him a pussy oh, yeah. for like a couple yeah. of weeks afterward, which I have a hard time believing that part of the story. I, and that part's weird. I could weird. be totally yeah. wrong. I, I don't know Jeff Tweedy personally, and I've interviewed him several times, but I can't say I know him at all as a guy. He's not someone that strikes me as someone who would call someone a pussy, like, repeatedly. (laughs) I don't know. It just seems strange to me. repeatedly is really the part. I mean, I do see the other part of the story does seem like that could have happened. I do think that a story like that takes on more weight if you are already inclined to look at your bandmate as an egomaniac or as a glory hog, which seems to have been how Jay Farrar looked at Jeff Tweedy as this guy that was who wanted to be a rock star and that was very antithetical to how Jay Farrar conducted himself so if he saw or he heard about his bandmate hitting on his girlfriend in a drunken way you know like basically and you know maybe Jeff Tweedy was was fooling around you know me, you know goofing off but crossing a line regardless you know I think if you were cool with someone like that you'd be pissed about your friend doing that but you would get over it but if you already look at your friend or your supposed friend as being this you know arrogant egomaniac guy that just adds fuel to the fire and it just reinforces what you already believe about him so that's how I'm inclined to view that story if, if, if that's Jay Farrar's sort of origin story for their split I do think that overall, like Jeff Tweedy's argument that Farrar felt threatened by Tweedy's artistic ascendance and that Tweedy was essentially not taking over the band, but taking over 50% of the band. I mean, that, that just makes more sense to me because Uncle Tupelo ultimately was Jay Farrar's band. I mean, he was the dominant person for the majority of that band's history. And to feel like this is my band, but now I'm going to be in a situation where I only get like half the songs on the record. That seems like eventually you're just going to say, screw this. I'm, I'm just going to form my own band. And that seems to have been when that happened in this situation.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think the girlfriend thing probably didn't help, but I, I think it was probably those two together. Probably paint, in my opinion, a more full picture of probably how it really went down. Yeah. I mean, Jay resented him for a whole laundry list of reasons. Yeah. All right. Hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. <laughs>
1: Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
0: Jean Eugene Fodor! Gene, was we'll good?
2: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Lasseter on the business. I understand now.
4: Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there.
5: We get in a situation now where they break up at the end of that tour in 1984, and Tweedy forms... Wilco immediately, like days after, with the, like the, the the leftover remnants of Uncle Tupelo, and um, I interviewed uh, Tweedy about this uh, in in 2017. We talked about the first two Wilco records, and he talked about how, and he was very upfront about this. He said like when he was working on the first Wilco record, which was Am, he felt a pressure to keep the momentum from Anodyne going because Anodyne was the highest-profile Uncle Tupelo record up until that point. And he felt a pressure to continue servicing that audience. You know, like, he didn't want those people to go away. And that definitely influenced the speed at which he made AM, and, of course, the content of AM, which, for all intents and purposes, is the fifth Uncle Tupelo record. I mean, it sounds like Uncle Tupelo without Jay Farrar. Wouldn't you say? I mean, I feel like that's a pretty straightforward reading of that record.
3: Yeah. I mean, it feels almost like an impression of Uncle Tupelo. And also, I mean, not only is he competing with his own past with Uncle Tupelo, he's, like it or not, the j 4 forms Forms Sunvolt and he's recording his own album, they're on the same parent label with the same producer and they're being released not that long apart. Comparisons are inevitable. So I'm sure he feels pressure on all sides to to not only measure up to his own past, but measure up to whatever Jay's gonna do. And what Jay does is great. Trace is
5: incredible. Yeah, it's great. And it's funny to talk about this now because you know, Wilco obviously has this great reputation. They have a great catalog. We all know Wilco a lot more than people know Sunvolt. I mean, Sunvolt is more of a cult act now. But in nineteen ninety-five you know, Jay Farrar was the better regarded one out of the two. And Sunvolt was the band that people looked at as the next great American band. Like, this was going to be the great band to come out of Uncle Tupelo. And that was even true within the record company. Like <laughs> uh, Tweeties told the story about how someone from, uh, from the label told him that AM, the Wilco record, which came out, I believe, in March of 95 was essentially setting the table for Trace, the Sunvolt record, which came out you know, a few months later. I think it came out like in the summer or fall of 95. Which is not something you really want to hear from your record company, that you are right, merely no. setting up. You're an appetizer. Right, exactly. And you're the appetizer for your rival, right? You know, who, <laughs> yeah. who we respect more as an artist and we expect him to be more successful than you.
3: And we put him on Warner Brothers and you get on this offshoot reprise label, which has, you know, kind of the more alt people like Van Dyke Parks and Randy Newman and Neil Young. I mean, kind of, kind of more of the, 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 the weirder, riskier people, if I may.
5: People who I love. Yeah, 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 like more of the niche. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, you're going to be more of like the the niche band and, you know, more you're also the appeal. lightweight guy. Right, yeah. Yeah, which is kind of funny because really, I mean, you would think that Farrar would have maybe preferred to be on the smaller subsidiary than the main label, you know, because that does seem more his speed and more of his outlook. Like when people compare the trajectories of Wilco and Sunvolt, you know, I actually don't think that, Ferrar would have wanted Wilco's trajectory. I think that he was happy with the path that Sunvolt ultimately took because he didn't really want to be famous. He didn't want to be hugely successful. I think he just wanted to do his own thing, whereas Tweedy was always more ambitious and you know wanted to engage the public and and, and wanted to have hits. Um, and really at that time, I mean, Tweety was looked at as like this lightweight pop guy basically. Whereas Farrar was like the serious, you know, furrowed browed, you know, heavy artist. And and that's how those records were perceived, uh, like when they came out in '95.
3: Yeah. I mean, I again, I, I like Trace far better than AM. I think that's not an uncommon opinion. Um AM has some moments. I like Box Full of Letters because it sounds like a bird song. Passenger Side's a great song, Casino Queen. Um, but yeah, it it, it did not sell. Or get anywhere near the same kind of reviews as, uh, as Trace did. Yeah, I mean, Trace is like maybe the greatest alt-country record
5: ever made. You know, again, defining alt-country as that decade of time, say from like the first Uncle Tupelo record in 1989 to like Heartbreaker by Ryan Adams. <laughs> if you want to call yeah. that the alt-country era, I think Sunvolt, Trace, along with those Uncle Tupelo records, those are like the great records of alt country, you know, put those in a vault. And I think of, like, the first track from Trace, Windfall, you know, Let the Wind Take Your Troubles Away, you know. Beautiful song. Jay Farrar's voice sounds incredible. That was his peak, I think, in terms of his critical esteem, his popularity, and really, like, artistic peak. Just an incredible song, and, and it just sets up that record beautifully. And then you have a record like AM, which I think has suffered in comparison to the other Wilco records. You know, I I feel like people tend to downgrade it because it's not as good as Being There or Summer Teeth or Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. And it's much simpler than those records. It's not, you know, as experimental. It's not inventing anything. It's basically reiterating what Uncle Tupelo did. But the defense I'd make of AM is that I don't think Jeff Tweedy wrote great songs in uncle tupelo like there's not a song from his time in uncle tupelo that's as good as passenger side is or box full of letters or shouldn't be ashamed like he was at that time exponentially getting better i think with each album as a songwriter and am ultimately ended up setting up better records afterward which maybe makes it seem a little weaker in retrospect and it also seems weaker in comparison to the Sunvolt record. But on its own, I think it's still pretty good. So I'm going to defend AM. And I am a total Jeff Tweedy apologist, too. I have to say that right now. So <laughs> No, you know, I know he's your guy. <laughs> but it's interesting, too, like with Wilco, as we dig into Wilco, because you and I were talking about this as we were outlining this episode. Because I feel like if you talk about his relationship with Jay Farrar, which is so fraught and, and fascinating, there's also the subplot of his relationship with Jay Bennett in Wilco, which is almost like a weird mirror version of what happened to Uncle Tupelo. But now with Jeff Tweedy in the power position.
3: Right. I mean, initially, some of his early Wilco bandmates talk about Jeff pitching the band to him as a, a true collective, and it became clear very early on that this was going to be Jeff's band. It was his name on the contract. It was—I th- I think uh, John Strutt said that he, he he went with Wilco because he thought he'd be able to get more songs on the record as opposed to Jay because Jay wrote better songs. And then he got one song on Am," I think. Um, so and and no songs afterwards. And no songs. <laughs> I think that's afterwards. like the,
5: right. I think that's the only John Strutt song on any Wilco record. I
3: think I think you're right. And I. I love Jay Bennett. I love the, I think the albums that they did together that he did with Wilco are my favorite Wilco albums. Some of my favorite albums ever. Jay Bennett. I mean, how would you describe him? I always kind of picture him as like David Foster Wallace with dreads instead of a bandana do rag, like disassembling a Mellotron. Like he's this mathematician, mad genius, musical maximalist could play any instrument had sort of intuitive understanding of, recording studio and all the technology I, I just picture him as this like musical scientist is that sort of a fair assessment
5: yeah i i always thought it was a shame that like philip seymour hoffman didn't play <laughs> jay bennett in a movie oh i always thought like if, yeah. if they had done like a like a like a, a fictional adaptation of i am trying to break your heart like philip seymour hoffman would have been perfect as jay bennett and to me jay bennett is like one of the great side men in recent music history you know he added so much to the sound of wilco records and he he could play so many different instruments so beautifully and uh, you know he ended up co-writing a lot of songs with jeff tweedy around this time and it just seemed like he was a great facilitator of Tweedy's ideas. He could take them to another place.
3: He added, yeah, some really beautiful embroidery, yeah.
5: Beautiful embroidery, and I think, like, if you listen to his solo records, like, he has a record called The Palace at 4am. Oh, I love that album. Which, I, I really like it, too, but I like it more as sort of, it's a view into what he contributed to Wilco, I think, because the production on that record is beautiful, the instrumentation on that record is beautiful, and the songs are just okay to me. Like, It's what Wilco would sound like if you didn't have someone like Tweedy at the center writing these great songs. And I think when they were together, you know, they made these great records. But when they separated, Tweedy could still make great records on his own. And Bennett, I don't think, could do that as easily. Now, I know that there's Wilco super fans out there whose heads are probably exploding right now. Because there are a lot of Jay Bennett loyalists out there. And this is an ongoing argument in Wilco fan circles about whether the band went downhill after Jay Bennett was fired. There's also all the things, there's many reasons why Jay Bennett was ultimately fired. It seems like, you know, there's the power struggle aspect that was going on between him and Tweedy, where I think Bennett felt that he
3: had more importance in the band, that he... Than he actually did. And, you see that in Sam Jones' documentary, too. I think he even says, Jeff was threatened by me. It's clear by the attention I was starting right. to get. And he's telling Sam Jones in the um, I'm Trying to Bake Your Heart documentary. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, he viewed it as as a duo and not as a band. He sort of saw himself as like the Prince Regent of, of Wilco.
5: Yeah, and there's the line in there where he says that Tweedy supposedly told him that a circle can only have one center. Right. And <laughs> it wasn't going to be Jay Bennett. It's interesting when you read Jeff Tweedy's book, because Tweedy writes about how he felt that Jay Bennett was essentially posturing for the cameras for that documentary and making himself look more important in the band than he actually was, which is kind of a weird thing to say. I mean, there's a little bit of weirdness with that just because Jay Bennett can't defend himself, obviously, at this point. He died, sadly, in 2009. But I think ultimately the big thing that I take from Tweedy when he writes about their relationship and why it fell apart is that... Tweedy and Bennett were essentially drug buddies, and they would do a lot of self-destructive things together. And from Tweedy's point of view, he felt like he had to get Bennett out of the band or else it would kill him. And of course, Tweedy ended up going into rehab a few years after uh, that whole thing went down. Uh, and, then, and then, of course, Jay Bennett had his own sort of sad slide into addiction that uh, turned out really sad and had a tragic end in 2009.
3: Right. I think he ended up suing uh, Jeff towards the end of his life for unpaid royalties so he could, I think, afford a hip replacement surgery that his health insurance wouldn't cover. I mean, his story is is one of the truly sad, yeah,
5: um, rock it's heartbreaking. Tales. I mean, it's awful. Su- super talented guy. I mean, it's so horrible what happened to him and that it couldn't, uh, that they couldn't keep it together. But getting back to the Jay Farrar parallel to this, you know. It, and this is a somewhat reductive thing, but it does seem like that was almost like a drug-addled version of what happened in Uncle Tupelo. Only now, you know, Tweedy was the one who had to decide, you know, to expel somebody, you know, that, that I'm the one who has to break away. Yeah. You know, because Jay Farrar had to do that. And what I, I always thought was interesting, too, about the Jay Farrar-Jeff Tweedy breakup in, in Uncle Tupelo is that I think Jay Farrar ultimately did Tweedy a favor by doing that. Oh yeah, you know because in a way you would think that Tweedy would be the one to want to get out of the band because he was the one who was ascending, he was writing more songs, and he was going to be stifled in that band if he stayed in there. You know, maybe it was just he was just used to a dynamic in Uncle Tupelo where he was going to be deferential to Ferrar, and he just couldn't leave the band, so it was up to Ferrar to say that this band is over, and he left.
3: That's where I think that that the the, the Bennett Ferrar thing is a little different because I feel like. Jeff didn't have the the blatant show of ego that Jay did, at least before Sam Jones's cameras in the documentary of sort of like making it apparent that he was an important creative force in this group. I feel like maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like Jeff was sort of more, almost like puppy, like, "Hey, I wrote this song, like let's let's do it," and it 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 seemed less um, manipulative or or less not malicious, but less ego driven and more more of a just dis- born of a desire to to share and contribute i mean what do you think about that is that just a really reductive way of, of putting that
5: i don't know man i feel like we gotta do a jeff tweedy jay bennett episode man we oh, might have to do man. a sequel to this because there's so much i feel like this is a tangent that i could talk about for another two hours right. I mean, that <laughs> the, the, between those guys it's crazy so maybe we should just table that for now and go back to to Jeff and and Jay. You know, there is a something with Jeff Tweedy and Jay's though. It's like if your name is Jay, you're never going to be in a band with <laughs> Jeff Tweedy again. I feel like you could be the greatest guitar player or the greatest keyboard player. He's never going to have another Jay in his band.
3: Yeah, you are blacklisted. Don't don't <laughs> but Jay's need not apply. The,
5: the, that name is cursed. So, okay, Getting back to the Jeff Tweedy, Jay Farrar rivalry, you know, if you're going to make a pro case for Jay Farrar, like what would be the basis of that?
3: I mean, so much of it, I think, is is, is personal taste. I like his lyrics better overall. I, I like sort of his, his more literate, sort of the small town existentialism. Grade Yard Shift, I think, is an amazing song. Whiskey Bottle, I think, is maybe I have to sit down and look, but maybe my favorite song either of them have written. I I, wow. I, should, I I should check that I should really sit down and think about that before I put that out there but yeah I think he's an incredible lyricist and even though sometimes it feels contrived or like a facade to me I I, I really do appreciate that at, especially at his age too he makes these songs that sound 100 years old like songs that Robbie Robertson would have written or something I mean he's an incredible gift for for making something of substance
5: yeah my my argument for Farrar would be that in terms of Uncle Tupelo he is without question the dominant Creative force. He was the best songwriter in that band at that time. He was the best singer in that band at that time, and he had the most charisma at that time. <laughs> I'm qualifying everything that, at that I just time. said specific to Uncle Tupelo, <laughs> but it's true that um, you know whatever. If you love Uncle Tupelo, and I and I really love Uncle Tupelo, most of what is great about that band comes from Jay Farrar. Yeah, you know, he defined that band's aesthetic you know, their thematic concerns. Um, and and he was just coming up with the best material at that time. And, and I said this earlier and I really think it's true that in terms of alt-country music, Jay Farrar is the greatest artist to come out of there. I think he made the best records and he wrote the greatest songs. And And I'm excluding Jeff Tweedy from that because I think ultimately Tweedy was not an alt-country artist. No, that
3: wasn't what he was. Yeah.
5: No, he started in an alt-country band. But... I don't think he was of that music. I think he used it as a vehicle to get his foot in the door. And then once he got into Wilco, he just went in a totally different direction. And he's written songs that are countryish or, or folky, you know, in, in some of their spare parts. But I think overall, he's n- he doesn't come from there in the same way that I think Jay Farrar does and the way that he still does. And, you know, we talked about Trace being a great record. I'll defend the entire Sun catalog. I, I think that they've made a lot of great records. Uh, you know, in the '90s and up through today, I think it's a
3: much narrower sonic and thematic palette that you than you get from Wilco. He's definitely more consistent than Wilco. I think that it's just like you said, it it it's more one note, and I it, it's a, a a great note, but I think that I admire Wilco's sort of musical adventures more than uh, his sort of purist streak and i know i don't think he started off to be a purist but i think that's sort of what he became
5: yeah i mean i i just feel like farrar had the blessing or the curse to be fully formed on that first uncle yeah. tupelo record and i think he i think he's become um i think he's refined his skills over the years but essentially he knew who he was at the beginning and Tweedy didn't you know it took several years for Tweedy to figure that out and in a way, you could say that Tweedy is still figuring that out. He's an artist who doesn't allow
3: himself as much to be fixed in one place in the same way that Ferrar does. Which is infuriating, but also incredible to be a part of that journey, too. I mean, you never really know what's coming with that, which is I mean, it's like Neil Young putting out trans or something. It's like, what right. are you doing? I, I, I see a lot of, of Neil Young and, Je- and Jeff uh, in just their stubborn refusal to really be pegged down. And I think that that's probably the thing I admire about him most.
5: Yeah, we've we've kind of bled into the pro Jeff Tweedy argument already. The pro Jeff Tweedy argument has hijacked the pro Jay Farrar argument. But yeah, I mean Sorry, Jay. The, the idea of him being a more adventurous artist, ultimately having a more varied and eclectic and I think overall better catalog uh over the past 25 years. And you know, I can't be impartial here. Like Jeff Tweedy is one of my heroes. Not just because I think he's a great songwriter, but I just admire how he's conducted himself in his career uh, being someone from the middle of the country who's stayed you know in Illinois who's always done his own thing you know Wilco is a band that is an island in the music business they always just make Wilco records and they're not affected by outside trends or like what is going on in the rest of the world at least not in the sense of trying to cater to it or uh, you know to like trend hop the way a lot of bands do He does what he does and it's really great you know he always writes great he he puts he writes great songs puts out great records and he conducts his career i think in a really admirable way and i've always admired that and it's something that i aspire to in my own life and my own career so
3: well, I think you got there, Stephen.
5: Yeah, I am I'm, I'm about to sing the wind beneath my wings, I think, for uh, Jeff Tweedy. <laughs> I was about to do. I appreciate you stopping me. Oh,
3: no, no, no. I was no, about
5: no. to uh
3: I mean, like I think I you got I think very... you reached Jeff Tweedy level of uh of, you know, skills and um adventure, adventurous spirit. And I mean, for me, Wilco was my entry point to to Jeff and Jay's music. I just uh, a Ghost Is Born came out when I was in high school and um and so I really didn't know much about Uncle Tupelo for many years. I, I I knew Wilco, and honestly, the news that he came out of an alt country band was kind of shocking to me when I I first learned that. Later on, you couldn't really find many Uncle Tupelo CDs in out you know kind of out in the sticks where I grew up, and I think that almost speaks more to how impressed I am that he ventured so far beyond that realm is just so incredible. See how far he's come. I also really admire, and I kind of alluded to, to this earlier in the episode, how he's really not afraid to, to wear his heart on his sleeve in his songs. I think a lot more so than, than Jay. Um, He does have this desire for intimacy and he shows you his really ugly sides and shameful thoughts. I mean, I think of the songs like Via Chicago and and She's a Jar. Uh almost saying like do you do you love me now? Do you love me still? Will you stay if I change my sound? Will you still stay? I don't know. There's something really um again, not to get too psychoanalytical, that that I I like that. That kind of trust with fans and that kind of vulnerability. I I always have admired with with him and all my favorite artists I think have that in common, Brian Wilson, being um being another one. Yeah, I think That
5: vulnerability is why people like me end up rattling on for minutes on end on podcasts about how (laughs) Jeff Tweedy's our hero and we want to be like him. Because we feel like we know him or we feel connected to him in some sort of way, which I'm sure would be very disturbing to him if he heard this show. Um, Bringing these two guys together, because we always like to end on a note of reconciliation. I feel like these two guys have in a way reconciled at least behind the scenes. Like there was an interview that Jay Farrar did in 2017 where he said that him and Jeff were emailing each other. Um, and I think the, the spark of that was that there was maybe going to be like an Uncle Tupelo archival release, which as of now has not seen the light of day. I don't know if that's still under discussion or not, but the idea was basically that, you know, there's been enough water under the bridge with us and we've, you know, we've lived our own lives. There's been a lot of things that have happened. We don't really need to hold a grudge over, you know, whether you hit on my girlfriend in 1992 <laughs> or whether, you know, you called me a mama's boy and, you know, <laughs> shortly after that, you know, we can get over that, uh, which warms my heart. Actually, I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a great clip on YouTube of Jeff Tweedy telling a story at a show and I think it was like in the late aughts. Oh, the beach thing? Yeah, the beach thing like where he was Yeah. He went on vacation in Mexico and he was like, I think, like he was like walking down the beach and there was someone in the distance and he realized that it was Jay Farrar and apparently they had both rented like houses on the same beach and there was one house between them and apparently the guy renting that house was an Uncle Tupelo fan.
3: Like a super fan. How... Best day of his life. How
5: random! How random can you be? And how awesome would that be? By the way, <laughs> like if you have,
3: oh yeah, Jay Farrar and Jeff Tweedy on either side of you. Well, either awesome, or I mean, if they were fighting, that could have been the worst vacation of his life, too. It's like, oh, well, it seems it's like they my were. Heroes. Or, no, they, it seems like they were pretty good. They gave each other like a bro nod, I think. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, like, hey man, what's
5: up? You know, and they didn't jam together though. You know, they weren't playing. Uh, Satan, your kingdom must come down by the campfire or or anything like that, Uh, which is a shame. I mean, but, you know, I think basically they both couldn't have stayed in the same band. You know, they were destined to break up and form their own bands. And I think really, as I said before, I feel like each guy got the band that they wanted.
3: Yeah, I mean, the comparison almost seems like unfair. It's like you're comparing yourself to like your high school girlfriend or boyfriend. And there really just becomes a point when you think, You know, we were thrown together at the time by proximity and mutual interests, and then the world got bigger. We found out who we are and what we really wanted and what we wanted to do and where we wanted to go, and we went there. And you know what? No hard feelings. I always got the impression that this might be kind of reductive, but Jay stayed true to his roots, and Jeff stayed true to his muse, and both of those are admirable things to do.
5: And I think it's safe to say that because they're both happy where they are, that there is a snowball's chance in hell... (laughs) Of a Uncle Tupelo reunion, I don't think that they will ever play together again. I, but you know, I I have no inside knowledge of that. But it's just, I I, I feel like Farrar would probably more, be more open to it than Tweedy would be. Really? Like I could see. Like I I yeah, I really think that Farrar would probably be more open to it than Tweedy. But I feel like Tweety's at a is at a moment like where. He's so used to having his own kingdom <laughs> in Wilco. Do you really go into a situation like where you're like a co-leader with a guy that you went to high school with? You know, I, I just don't see that being something he'd
3: want to do. Oh, I see Jeff thinking that it would be great. I could see Jeff thinking it would be great. And then a, like five minutes into it being like, oh, hell no. Oh no, this is and immediately regretting it. That's where I fall on it. I could see Jay dragging his feet, but when he finally agrees, Jeff being like, oh, cool. And then two songs into the rehearsal being like, all right, nope, this is done. I mean, I think the
5: best case scenario is that like they do a reunion show at like a supper club in Belleville. You know, like and (laughs) there's and there's like 15 people there, you know, and they're all like friends and family. And someone ends up shooting like a really grainy you know, iPhone video of it. And that's the only reunion that they do. I, I could see that scenario happening. And that seems like the best case scenario. Just like a one-off, just having fun type reunion. So hopefully that will happen. I'm just putting that out in the universe. That scenario. I think that's a good wish. That's a good wish. I'd like to see that. And I'd be happy. It'd be it'd be a good way to, to bring an end to this alt-country blood feud that I've had so much fun talking about. I feel like, again, the, this... This means a lot to me, this this feud, and I, I could talk about it forever. But we must put an end to this episode at some point. And hopefully we'll come back for uh, the other Jay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Coming for you, Jay Bennett.
3: Oh, Steven, that was
5: great. Hi, right, man. It's always
3: a pleasure talking with you about oh, this. Oh, man, so much fun. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. All right, take care. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Chacon and Tristan McNeil. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.